Today on the show, we're joined by Dr. Angela Lim, founder of Clearhead, New Zealand's first AI-driven diagnostic and triage platform for mental health and well-being. Angela's had a wild ride. She graduated from the University of Auckland's medical school and started pediatric training at Starship Hospital. But her passion for tackling inequality led her to take a break from clinical practice in order to focus on developing scalable and innovative solutions in healthcare. For the impact she has made with Clearhead, she is a finalist of the 2021 Women of Influence Award for the Innovation, Science and Health category. In this episode, we discuss her journey growing up in Malaysia and reflecting on the important role models in her own life, breaking away from medicine, the origins of Clearhead, highlights and challenges along the way, leadership, work-life balance, and what the future has in store. Without further ado, this is Angela. Enjoy. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious because obviously as, a, as an ex-doctor, do you ever look back at that life? I miss the patient-doctor relationship. Uh, it is a truly very sacred relationship that there's not, there nothing in the world that ever replicates that. You know, for someone in their most vulnerable to trust a complete stranger that they haven't built years of relationship with, share things that they might not even tell their closest friends or family. It's, it's a relationship that is, um, yeah, it's very powerful, especially when in those moments when they're scared and vulnerable, you are an anchor for them. Knowing that, uh, knowing that I had played a part in the many patients that I've been able to interact over my time as a doctor, I miss that. Do I miss the inefficiency of the systems, the way that it's set up so that it's not patient-centric? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, and ultimately that was what made me leave the profession because I can't work in something that I felt was not really moving the dial and only getting worse, not better. Yeah, and I think in terms of to come back to your comment around, you know, that it's a first for for you to have your your guests not sort of want a different life. I think a lot of who we are today, the good and the bad, uh, allows us, you know, you can't, there you can't sort of find the counterfactual and therefore it is uh it is unproductive and unhelpful to kind of wonder you know oh what if that person was the love of my life or what if that was the job that was the perfect job and in fact I was having a really good chat with a friend um last night about this book called number two and it's a fiction book about this person who um, was the number two person um, to become Harry Potter uh, instead of Daniel Radcliffe. And it goes down this path of this person being, you know, self-sabotaging his life and and um, going into a really dark place. And then it ends with sort of, um, he breaks up with his girlfriend that he loves and the girlfriend finds Daniel Radcliffe and, and got Daniel Radcliffe to speak to him. And Daniel Radcliffe sort of talks about how the fame has got fucked up his life. And um, and then people all realize that actually that there is no perfect life, that we all have our own demons and challenges. But if we make peace with it, um, you know, we, we can find um, whatever is beautiful in that. And I think that's really the moral of the story. You, you get given whatever deck of 
cards that you get given. It's how you play it that that ultimately determines your outcome. Yeah. That is one way to start an episode. I really like that. <laughs> so, what what was uh, look before we sort of get into your your life. Uh, sort of in university and then obviously starting this incredible initiative um, that, that you have. We'd love to sort of take a step back. I mean, I, I think we mentioned um, at the start of this episode that we are very big on storytelling. What was growing up like for you? Yeah, um, I grew up in Malaysia, actually. Yeah. Uh, and my my childhood is probably going to sound very foreign, if you, especially if you have younger listeners. Uh, so I grew up in Malaysia. I studied in Singapore. Uh, at the age of seven, I would catch the bus at 4 a.m. by myself, make my own lunch and stuff like that. Um, and then I'll get to school at 7 a.m. The school bus takes about three hours to get to Singapore. Um, go to school, finish about 3 or 4 p.m. And then take the school bus home. And then I'll get home about 8, have dinner, do homework, rinse and repeat, basically. So I've been doing oh, that wow. since I was seven. And it, was a level I think of independence in me that I think that a lot of people probably don't appreciate um, or haven't had the chance to develop that uh, and sometimes I'm also like maybe overly independent um, but it is just a core cool part of my DNA um, yeah and I think like you know I think I was oh I must be something like 10 or something like this and I had misplaced my uh, my I, I uh, had uh, missed my ba- my bus um, from the Singapore custom to uh, to um, on the way back to the Malaysian custom, and so I actually walked the causeway by myself. This was back mm-hmm. when like there was like no mobile phones, so like my mom was incredibly worried. By the time I got to Malaysian custom, I like borrowed money off someone to like use the pay phones to call her and say, "I'm in the Malaysian custom. Can you pick me up?" And oh my god, the, wow. the hell rain rain loose. Then, but yeah, so um, my mom calls me the devil's spawn for shit like that, and um, yeah. <laughs> that was my challenge. <laughs> wow, three hours each day, so six hours a day you were spending in transport, yeah, yeah, more or less. Yeah. Wow, wow, yeah. Did, did you ever find time to study on the <laughs> on the transport as well? Yeah, like... that's what we did. We would sleep <laughs> yeah. on the bus, we would eat on the bus, we would party on the bus, and we would do our homework in the bus, like, we oh were just God. that, like. Like our mm. life like, like circled around the bus. And then mm. in the weekend, we would go to all these extra classes and then your friends would be all the people doing tuition with you. So Jeez. yeah, it's, that's like <laughs> oh, the God. Asian life. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. Well, you, Angela, like uh, obviously you started in medicine, then you went into business and started Clearhead. And, um, you know, that's where we, we are today. But is medicine or even mental health, was that something that was in your family or something? Like, so was medicine something that was within your family at all? No, or was I, mental I, health a topic that was ever discussed? Because no, I always find I mean, it so, the reason I ask <laughs> is I find it so fascinating. I find it so fascinating, sorry, that like a lot of people that end up going into mental health don't actually have anyone, like growing up, no one ever spoke about it. And that's what actually what catapulted them into it. Um funnily enough, at least the people that I've been speaking to. Obviously, there are pockets and uh, people outside that, but I've always found that so fascinating. Whereas with medicine, a lot of people that I know that go into medicine is because, you know, other people in their family have and and so forth. But mm. always curious to hear the story for, for you particularly. Yeah, so I don't have anyone in the family, uh, both, I think, in both my parents, both my mom and my dad's side, um, in all generations, I'm the first doctor. Um, mm, wow. and 
Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't have said that like I wanted to be a doctor. I just didn't know what else to do, to be honest. Um, I was always fascinated by science. And I think, you know, we, I talked about sort of, you know, delving down string theory and stuff like that. I was always fascinated by the universe, by the human brain. So the human brain uh, was um, probably something that even when I was really young, I was hugely fascinated by Um and so I actually, my first degree was actually in neuroscience and psychology. Uh, and then um, kind of didn't see myself going down that research uh, path. And so thought that, okay, well, what else could I do? I love helping people. So like medicine felt like a logical next step. Uh, I actually um, didn't get into medicine the first time. So there's two pathways to get into medicine. Um, as an undergrad after your first year in university and then as a postgraduate um, after you um, complete a whole degree. So I uh, applied when I was um, an undergraduate, not because I wanted to, but because I didn't know what else to do. And like I was in a class of a thousand people and I would say like at least 900 of them wanted to get into medicine. Um, and I think when you get sleep, when you're in that sort of uh, ecosystem where everybody wanted something you kind of get swept along as so I was like oh maybe I might want to apply for medicine too and I didn't get in actually I was I think um too off the list or something like that um and that was that I think to me on hindsight and ended up sort of becoming one of the biggest blessings because it really made me question like did I really want to um get into medicine and so I went down like this whole path around trying to search for my purpose and stuff like that. And one of the things I did in my second year of university is I went to the Ukraine and um, I was there for three months in the middle of winter. Um, still my first time seeing snow, mm -hmm. um, mm -mm. you know, like snow up to my hips. It was like minus 30 degrees. I had like 10 layers on. I looked like a polar bear. It was hilarious. <laughs> and but what was really interesting was like it was that was a very, one of the most pivotal moments for me because that was the moment where I thought about what it meant to live in a life that was inequitable. I think growing up in Asia, a lot of success meant like money and and, and mm. you know all the things that come with it, the five C's, right? The condo, the car, the credit card, yeah. um, and all those kind of things. And and that was the and and when I was living in Ukraine, um, I lived in um in a middle class with a middle class family but the neighborhood uh in in new zealand australian standards would be considered a bit of a slum and um and opposite that neighborhood would be like the flashiest shopping mall and you know ferraris parked outside and it would always be really striking to me that I would be sitting on this bus and there'd be potholes everywhere. And I would think to myself, I was like, wow, there are all these Ferraris, but they drive on a pothole-filled road. Like, where's the joy in that? And it reminded me, like, if there's shared prosperity and that if everybody has a, a standard of living that is fair, you know, everybody enjoys the um, the experience. And so I think that was the first time that sort of wealth inequality stuff really kind of 
or income inequalities that really can hit me. Um, and that becomes something that really resonated in terms of like my value, which is very much around fairness. Um, I, uh, you will, my mom will definitely tell you that I would always fight with her and argue with her about how everything was like, whenever she asked me to do something and I don't agree with her, I was like, it's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> so, so fairness was always like a thing for me, like even when I was a mm. little kid. Um, mm. So that was like one of the key turning points. Um, anyway, so a lot of that stuff, you know, like uh, made me kind of reflect. And I was like, at the end of it, I was like, yeah, but I still want to, I still want to, you know, apply for medicine. So I did. So I finished my degree and I, I applied for medicine uh, and then I got in um, my second goal with it. And, um, and that was when I think I went through, I guess, a more traditional view of mental health, which, you know, I, I don't think I ever got diagnosed or, or really sought help at the time, but I was in a very dark space. So I got to medical school and, you know, I came in as a postgrad. Most of my classmates got in as undergrads and they were just high on life. They think that, you know, there's the sense of like, we're gods kind of thing, you know, like, and I just could not resonate with any of that. So I felt very alienated from my classmates. Uh, and then we had like, exams in, 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 you know, sort of first year of uh, medical school and our class average was an A plus. And my, my exam results was like, I don't know, I was like a B plus or something like that. And it was, and I studied really hard. And I think those were the moments where I was like questioning myself. I was like, I spent three years dedicating and, and learning and then applying for medical school. There's another five years to go. And I, and I'm working so hard and I am just, average you know and I can't and and well actually technically I'm below average because the average is a plus and so I think that really made me question a lot about like whether I wanted whether I was meant to be in medicine and that doubt sort of stayed with me for at least a, a, about a couple of years um, and because of that you know I really did a lot of like random things um, which kind of lead me to the path that I ended up being on today but you know I tried a lot of stuff like sitting on boards volunteering etc that helped me kind of try and find what I could be good at because I didn't feel I could be good at medicine um those that changed after we hit our clinical years and I realized actually I had a really great patient um, manner uh, bedside manner that not you know like that helped me realize that you know being a good doctor isn't always just about like you can rattle the facts off the top of your head but actually you know are you compassionate and empathetic to the patient and you can help them figure out what they need and, and empower them through the journey. And I can tell you a lot of healthcare isn't like that in terms of an experience. Um, so that kind of really is kind of the turning point for me. And then to answer your final question around like why mental health and in the context of ClearHead, which is obviously an employee wellbeing platform, it was just kind of thinking about well, what I struggled with when I was a doctor was just like I felt like there was really this inequity again in access to care and inequity in the health outcomes for those who got care. And a large part of that was this like issue around, you know, good access, um, good quality, you know, things that are culturally responsive. And in the end, I when sort of thinking about, well, if I was to strike out on my own and make a difference, I want to make a difference on the largest scale. And not everybody will have heart failure. Not everybody will have diabetes. But 
almost everybody will at some point in their life be affected by their mental health. Um, mm. And that is why I wanted to work in that space. I wanted to make the biggest impact possible. Wow. And that is my story. Sorry for the long story. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's um, that's that was really, and I think um, you, you kind of touched on there, um, the values that um that you that you have in terms of in terms of fairness, and I think that's a really good, uh, kind of segue into I guess your the idea ideation and 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 execution of Clearhead, um, of course, uh, and I think just based on the research that I've done and and listening to you um on in in many other uh, conversations, I guess what you found within the within the healthcare system was i guess poor health outcomes for potential patients that would come in i guess the question arising from that is what did the process look like for for clearhead and sort of creating the creation of clearhead i mean right from the ideation through to its release and through to its execution what did that sort of process look like for you yeah and i think like if there are sort of people who are listening into this podcast and like wanting to start their own startup i think that you recognize a few things that um, that through doing this journey, I learned one is ideas are not unique. Um, often these problems, especially the big ones, are incredibly obvious, and people have personal experience. And and so, but what what will differ is the depth of thinking and the ability to work through the problems in in part of the execution. And and the execution in this case also include knowing how to hire the right people to get you there. I mean, the same people, and it's not necessarily the same people who got you from point A to B will take you to point B to C. And it's okay. You know, it's, it's a season of life that um, you need to be able to know when to let go and, and when to kind of know uh, when that the, the dial has shifted again. In terms of the, the and so I would say that Clearhead in many ways is like a, my baby and, and all the different phases it's gone through. The first phase um, of Clearhead was this ideation phase that was very idealistic. We, uh, a large part of why we started Clearhead was we heard a lot of stuff like patient-centric care, like co-design, that was just absolutely not practiced beyond paid lip service in public system and in the private system as well. So I started Clearhead about uh, in sort of late, September 2018 with my co-founder, Michael Connolly, who's, who he himself is an amazing guy. He's a software engineer, has been coding since he was eight years old. You know, his father would bring him spare computer parts and he would assemble his own computers. And, and he's just an all-around awesome, nice, lovely guy. And um, it's very like, you shout know, it's, a, it's shout like... Out it's, if he's it's, <laughs> shout out. Like, I mean, I think like, I think in many ways, it's like, it's really funny, like um, our, our story. Uh, it's very unusual. Um, and one day, hopefully, maybe we'll have our own, <laughs> our own TV show. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, so yeah, so that initial phase, we came together and we're like, look, um, there's this great opportunity. We, we met our investor at a conference and he was going to give us a whole bunch of money. Let's quit our jobs and let's try and co-design this solution and, and bring to life something that we felt wasn't happening. And we wanted to demonstrate basically that these best practices could exist could be done well and it's actually then you know will drive the outcomes that the research has said it would and it would also not be super expensive in fact it's probably more cost effective than not doing it 
And so the first six months of Clearhead, we co-designed with more than 500 people across the country. These were people who got services for mental, who got mental health services, people who did not get mental health services, people who delivered mental health services, the NGOs that were the safety net for all the people who are not able to meet the demand, you know, the funders like the government. And we really said that we don't want to reinvent the wheel, but, you know, when we talked to all these people, where was the gap that we saw that we could help? And so we wanted to basically improve two things. One was the ability to access care more easily and more effectively and, and also uh, more efficiently as well because there was huge amount of inefficiencies in the way that we design our healthcare delivery. And then the second, that it should be personalized. You know, like I don't think that things should be a one-size-fits-all and that, you know, if it is done well, you will feel incredibly empowered by it and that will be your journey on your personal mental health and well-being. And, and so we kind of designed that to help people kind of remove all the complexity. And for us now, the vision of Clearhead is to ensure that, you know, mental health support is you know, it's personalized, it's effortless, and it's empowering. It's all the things that we had set out to achieve. And if we do that, we will transform the way care is delivered and we will go from this like illness model to a wellness model. Mm-hmm. And and being able to do that um, initially because we wanted it to be accessible to everyone, we thought, okay, the government would be the best person to pay us. And, and so we spent the first two years really trying to work with the government. Long story short, the government is not a first mover in these kind of innovations. <laughs> yeah, no, Incredibly risk adverse. And yeah. also, I think, um, not very transparent sometimes around how the procurement decisions get made. And so I think in terms of like, a couple of myths that has been challenged from that perspective. One is that like this perspective that like your idea is super precious. It's probably that. Um, It's the execution on the idea that does. The second is around sort of this whole thing around the best idea or the best product will win. Again, it's probably not true. The world doesn't work like that. It's about the relationships you've built and your ability to tell the story. So those were two things that, that helped me realize that you, you know, sometimes holding too tightly to your idea and not sharing and not getting feedback and not collaborating um, only hampers your growth. And I think it has been able to grow with its uh, very strong grassroots movement because we've sort of held that, that intention quite loosely. And then, the, so then the next phase obviously was us pivoting um, post the pandemic. So the pandemic hit and we tried one last go. We said, look, if, if there's any time the government would give us a go, it would be now when the whole system is in crisis, we have a system set up to kind of support at scale. Long story short, it didn't happen. And we said, look, we can't bang our head against a brick wall anymore. So we pivoted to corporate well-being. Within the first three months, we landed our first customer, which ended up being the largest employer in New Zealand, which was huge oh, wow. validation for yeah. us. Yes. And then we rolled from there. And yeah. um, and and so then we were like, cool, we've got product market fit now. Let's let's go yeah. get some investment and let's go scale <laughs> up this and, and really make more of an impact. Yeah. And then and then investors initially were like, oh, you know. You won't grow. You're not growing fast enough. You know, come back to us when you're growing much more faster than you are now. Oh, and so, yeah. and so we were like, oh, the skepticism of me being the female founder, even though like you know you oh, wrecked yeah. off my background, like 
And I totally got gaslighted for the first three months, I think. I was like, oh, really? Hey, actually, I? I, yeah, absolutely. I absolutely doubted like, myself. I was like, oh, I'm a terrible founder. I should have known all these things. And like, I made all these bad mm. decisions. And, mm. and then actually, I took a step back after a lot of reflection during the... Um, so this was obviously around like December 21. And then sort of during the summer break, then I like, took some time to reflect. And I was like, oh, you know, like, yeah, there are some things I could take out of that that I can action on. And then there are, and some things I'm like, I call bullshit. <laughs> you yeah. listen to my pitch for 30 minutes. Versus yeah. I've been living and breathing health tech for 15 years uh, across all these different lenses. Are you trying to really tell me you know how to solve this problem better than I do? Mm. Anyway, um, and I think that, you know, like to shift the gear again around like, you know, mental health, not just being about like this battling, this dark space, um, mm. but actually about thinking about, um, you know, in, in finding your purpose, which I did after that first couple of years of trying to search for it in, in medical school, I kind of kept building on that. I kept building on that. But then you realize how powerful your mind can be if you just take the time to be self-reflective, you know, how are you feeling? Why is this happening? And then work your way through around not being a victim. Like, you know, bad things happen to everyone. Rich people, poor people, minorities, um, you know, like it doesn't discriminate. But what you can do is like if you can harness the beast, it, it is absolutely um, can supercharge you. And so instead of like me sort of like, you know, uh, being sort of, pitting to myself and say oh you know like these investors they don't invest in female founders and you know and it's true like less than two percent of vcs money goes to female founders i like i can't change my gender i can't so i can only control what i can control and so i reset with the team and we said look investors want to see growth let's do it so we we took the first quarter of this year to plan and then we executed really tightly over the last two quarters after that. So basically from when we got the feedback in December to where we are now, we grew the revenue by 800%. So it, what my point here is, is that like you could have let, your, you could have let that, that adversity or that setback just kind of spiral you. Or you mm. could take it as like something that you anchor at and then you you control what you can control and then you achieve things that you didn't even know you could achieve. All I said to the team, mm. I was like, look, what we want to achieve this year is 20% month-on-month growth. That is our goal. I don't know if we can do it. We've never done it before, but we will try. And the minute you set that intention, you have a very clear plan, you bring the right people in, you, you look back and smash that's it. what I'm doing now. Mm. You smash it. You, mm. you know, I think I always say like you often overestimate what you can achieve in one year and underestimate what you can achieve in five. You know, like yeah. would I ever have dreamt that we would mm. be where we are today where like almost every market leader in every major sector is using Clearhead as a provider from a no-name. We went from zero to 15% of the market share in one year. Like, of course, I wouldn't have thought that was even remotely possible. And so with that, you know, it's with that, intention and that confidence that builds over time i'm going to go back out in capital raise this month and i'm just like hey this is an amazing opportunity we've got a good team you know like there are very few companies that have great people great products and great processes uh, to do things at scale 
we prove that it is possible to absolutely systematically work your way towards achieving the outcomes that you care about. And so I'm really excited about that. As you as you scale and grow from say one user to a hundred user, hundred users, you've now got ninety nine users to the system. How do you mm. um, mobilize your team? How do you mobilize your systems? That's How right. do you mobilize the software that it picks up on the nuances and the characteristics of those ninety nine new people That's right. within the space mm. of a week or space of a month that you're growing in? So creating um, that bespoke model um, that exists even in spite of scale is such an in- incredible like you need to think about both ends of the spectrum um yeah and i i would like to sort of also you know say that like i think it is a myth to have it all right so you've mm-hmm. heard of the paradigm um things can be cheap they can be fast and they can be good but they can't all be there at the same time and so what is your trade-off and the trade-off for us is we take time we take time to bake in and build do things properly and so when you experience the create platform you experience the levels of thinking and design that has gone into it this is not a quick hack that took us a week this is now four-ish years of thinking constant iteration deeply understanding our uh, users changing needs and doing it well um, and so it's not cheap, but it's cost effective. And it's inc- and the one thing that we hold tight to our brand promise is that there is always going to be a high quality experience when you come to Clearhead. Um, so yeah, so do we grow as fast? Do we move as fast as our competitors? No, but I honestly believe in this case, the tortoise will win the race. Um, yeah. That's mm, kind yeah. of the approach we're taking. Yeah, mm. go the tortoise. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> slow a, and steady uh, wins the race. Slow and yeah, steady definitely wins steady. the race. Yeah. Uh, I know we're we're approaching time nearly, Angela. But there was this one question before we wrap up, and um, and that and that question was often the founder journey is um, you know, sometimes quite lonely at times, but also there are some incredible mentors and incredible people. I'm sure that you lean on as well throughout the journey. Mm. So, um. Question Mank and I had just um, out of curiosity was, you know, who are the mentors that you kind of lean on and and the, and the people you look up to as you go on this journey as a founder and as you are probably navigating a hundred new things each day, um, you know, who are the people that you go to as your sort of advisors, mentors, whether it be um, personal, professional, spiritual, all these other different elements of our life? Oh, there are so many. Um I think that there's no one person that can give me all that I need. As you said, um, that journey keeps uh, evolving. In fact, my role as a CEO keeps evolving. That's I get bored very easily. So this this is fun because I um the the pro- <laughs> once I think I like unlock something, I'm like here's a new problem you've got to solve. Yeah. Um, yeah. if I, if like who holds consistent for me, my grandma, she was mm-hmm. someone who, basically, you know, she uh you know. Is, escaped China um, during World War II um, because of the Japanese invasion, uh, you know, was had no money, basically. Raised seven kids who lived in one room. Most of them didn't even finish primary school. And almost all of them ended up being self-made millionaires. And so oh, wow. the fact that my grandma taught them these, and, and like all of them incredibly, incredibly giving people, you know, like you sometimes hear about 
rich people being dicks basically um mm. and you know like my um, my family have only ever just done charity work a lot of donations and they um, admire my 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 family in terms of what they had to go through in terms of abject sheer abject poverty where all of them lived in one room, had one meal a day and to unlock the type of um, value in the work that they did. Um, for example, my, un- my uncle was the uh, first person to bring digital passports in the world. Um, oh, whoa. So, yeah. Um, oh, wow. So, like, and he didn't even finish secondary school. Um, so, like, so I think, like, I think if we were going back right to the first question, it's like, what ran in the blood? I think it was entrepreneurship. I think I ran away from mm. that for for 20 years of my life. And then as part of that search for like who I am, what I'm good at, like I ultimately came back to my roots, even though I kind of didn't thought that I would. Um, so the, 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 my family is a huge inspiration. Um, I lean on the business leaders. So books that I love that if um, anyone's interested in running a high quality business um, the two that I recommend one is by Peter Thiel which is zero to one and the other is um, Jim Collins good to great and so you know I'm here to build an enduring business that is going to change the world in terms of how mental health care gets delivered um, and those two books are uh, great for the the phases the company goes through mm. um, oh. I love watching YouTube videos um, and then I love tapping into just you know my peers um, and the business leaders in my network um, whenever the, the the relevant advice is needed so mm. that's kind of who I lean on a whole bunch of people wow. some I know and some I don't but um, they all help me grow in the problems that I face you will, will, will try and be a, a clear head marketing agent for, for the next episode <laughs> so uh, we'll try and do that I will everyone. love that <laughs> yes we, we, we'll make sure we'll look after you don't worry um, we, we, we try and yeah uh, we'll, well and I mean Australia is a key market for us <laughs> yeah no yeah. definitely and if uh, if you ever want to sponsor us for anything just let us know we'll we want happy to, to take any <laughs> take any funds <laughs> we need to buy some new mics so, when i uh, when i have lots of money um and we'll make sure that we'll yeah <laughs> <laughs> And that's a wrap for this episode. If you're enjoying our conversations, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All the conversations are recorded in video, so check us out on Instagram and Facebook at our handle at Bottled Up Oz. Drop us a comment or a message if any of these conversations resonate with you. And most importantly, please share this podcast with anyone who might need it. So as always, this is Bottled Up. Thanks for being part of our family and see you next time.